Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And this passage is a beautiful passage, and it's often read at weddings because it's all about how to navigate relationships in love. And so who hears that and says, you know, I'm good. I'm already an expert in relationships and displaying love in relationships. I don't, I'm good. Don't need any more lessons. No one should say that. We, we all need help here. Relationships are hard primarily because selfish people like you and me are in them. So before we dive into this text, let me remind you of the context. Paul has been refuting in Colossians for two chapters uh, false teaching. He's been refuting that. And now in chapter 3, he's showing us what it looks like to live out our new life in Christ. So the first part of this chapter, Paul has focused on our vertical dynamic, our relationship with Christ. He's saying, seek him, make, make that relationship your first priority. And then last time we were together in the book of Colossians, we looked at our inner dynamic, that as we seek Christ, our old sinful nature wages war still within us. And so Paul counsels us to put to death what is earthly in us, put to death our old sinful nature. And Paul has started to develop this metaphor in that passage of a clothing metaphor. He says, put off the old self like a garment, like, like you're a pair of old clothes you don't want anymore, and put on the new. And so that's where we are this week. Having looked at the vertical and the inner dynamics of the new life in Christ, Paul wants to walk with us through the horizontal dynamic, how we are to navigate relationships in love. So let's read our passage together. Starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, anyone ha- if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good gift of your word. We pray now that as we open it up that you would do what you promised and you said that it would do, that the unfolding of your word gives light. And so we make that our prayer. Come light our path, come light our hearts with the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so have you ever thought about how your clothing says a lot about you. You're presenting yourself to others. It's a form of self-expression. So, for example, in the 90s, 
I expressed how cool I was by wearing wallaby shoes. Does anybody remember what those are? Baggy, baggy jeans, a rugby shirt, and of course a necklace with shells on it. So that, that is a first day of school picture of me somewhere, um, and I hope it stays somewhere. Um, but what's interesting is that actually I, I didn't like any of those things. I, I really didn't like those shoes. I, I, I wasn't into shells, and I wasn't into rugby. I didn't even know what that was. But that was just the fashion of the day. And, and so I wanted to be cool, but I was insecure like we all are. And so, therefore, I used what I wore to project a cool status. I was living by the advice, you know, don't dress for the job that you have, dress for the job that you want. And so, I wanted the cool status, and so I dressed like it. So, I was, I was trying to dress for the cool status that I wanted. And so, you see, that reveals the fundamental problem of humanity's relationship with God and relationship with one another. It's what Brian Chappell called confusing your who with your do. That is, our our default way of approaching God and others is what I do determines who I am. What I wear, what I put on, my accolades, my performance, that determines who I am. I'll put these on and then I'll get that status from God and others that I, I, I desperately want. But the opposite is true when you come to the gospel. It says who you already are by virtue of what Christ has done for you on the cross determines and shapes what you do. You don't perform to get a status, but rather in the gospel you're given the status of a child of God by the grace of Jesus Christ. You're called to just receive it by faith and then wear it put it on. That's the, the main point I want us to see as we spend time together in our passage, is that your new status in Christ calls for a new wardrobe. You've already been made a child of God. Now just dress like it, act like it, put off the old, put on the new. And so we'll see that play out in three points in our time together. First, the grace received from Christ. Second, grace reproduced in you. And third, grace replayed in community. So first, grace received from Christ. Look with me again in verse 12. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, so on and so on. So I want to stop right there and say the order of these things is huge. Put on therefore, then. So put on in light of who you already are, what Jesus has already won for you, that status, put that on. And let your who shape your do. But who does Paul say that we are? Paul uses the word, he says, God's chosen ones, which literally means God's elect. So, okay, I get that if you hear that, uh, you might have issues and intellectual questions that come up, and I'm happy to talk about that later with you. But for now, in order not to preach two sermons... Um, let's, just try, let's just try this on for a second. Let's just see how this doctrine fits. And notice that's what Paul's doing anyway. He's not defending this doctrine. He's applying it. He's using it. 
Why is he using it? He's, he's using it because he wants to comfort struggling Christians in Colossae. He wants to remind them and assure them of, the, of God's love and grace. It's like he's, he's wanting them to think. He's saying, why are you a Christian? Why are you a recipient of grace? Why, why did the gospel of Jesus come to you, former pagans in Colossae? And why did you receive it? Was it anything to do with you? Your smarts, your potential, your sincerity, your good works? No. It was because God chose you, because he loved you from eternity past. And that's the same comfort we read earlier in the assurance of pardon from Deuteronomy 7, is that he chose Israel not because they were great or more righteous, not because they were going to be awesome at living out their faith. You know, the rest of the Bible shows us how that wasn't the case. But he chose them because he loved them. So you hear that logic. He loved them because he loved them. So if you're someone who trusts Christ this morning, that can only be because God set his love on you from eternity past. He set his love on you and chose you, which is something that you could have never earned. And therefore, here's the comfort, that's something you can never unearn. And so as his chosen, you're secure in his love. Um, I heard of a family that had two biological children and one adopted child. And one day the adopted boy learned the fact that he was adopted. And he was kind of down about it. He's like, I'm not like my other siblings. And the dad took that kid aside and he said, you know, when mommy and daddy had, you know, Billy and Sue, the biological children, um, we just got what we got. But we got to pick you out of all the babies in the world. And that child never had an issue with that fact again. Why? I'd like to suggest to you, he's actually grabbing hold of what Paul is trying to tell to us. That if you've been adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus now, then that means that God had determined it, determined to set his love on you from eternity past. Out of all the people in the world, his grace came to you. And Paul adds to this, he adds two more words describing who you are. He says we're holy and beloved. So let's think about the first word, holy. That simply means set apart for, special, for God's special use. It means you belong to God. It means you're his special possession. You're set apart for his special use. It's like in Toy Story. Y'all know to- Toy Story. It's, it's when Andy writes his name on your foot. You're his toy. Out of, out of all the toys in the world, you're, you're speci- you specially belong to Andy. You're his. That's what, that's what it means to be holy. And secondly, he says, you're his beloved. So you're not just owned by God, you're loved by God. And that fact defines who you are to your core. You say, I, I'm the one, I'm someone that Jesus loves. I'm the object of his affection. And so now imagine what happens if this is the identity that you live out of. Imagine how you'd live if you lived out of this rock-solid confidence that you are the chosen, holy, and beloved of God, of Jesus. And so Paul is urging you, urging us, ground yourself here. Recharge your batteries here. 
then you'll be able to launch out into the world with a sense of groundedness and strength and poise. You'll be able to enter messy relationships and take a hit and still take the posture of love and service because to your core, you are secure in the love of Christ. So resting in this status, receiving this grace from Christ is the necessary prerequisite to a lifestyle of grace that follows. That leads us to our second point, grace reproduced in you. So look again in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. So as God's beloved ones, this is your wardrobe. This is what you are to put on in relationships towards one another. So first on the list is compassionate hearts. Let's think about this. What is this? This is a deep gut-level emotion of empathy for another person who is suffering and yearns to move towards that person for their healing, for the, towards their flourishing. And this is a common description that describes the heart of Jesus. We actually heard it last week in Mark chapter 8. Jesus saw the crowds and had compassion. Compassion is seeing someone else's brokenness, someone else's fallenness, neediness, misery, and instead of being repulsed by it, you're actually moved by it towards them in mercy. So to put this on in relationships means that even when you encounter someone's sin, someone's neediness, someone's rudeness towards you, your response is not, yuck, um, I'm going to avoid this person now. But it's compassion, empathy, mercy. It's longing for that person's flourishing and redemption and restoration. It's saying in your heart, man, you've got a fallen sin nature just like me. You've got a backstory. I wonder what, I wonder what you're feeling. I wonder what that is. That's a compassionate heart. It's, it's empathy plus posturing yourself in love for that person's good and that person's flourishing. So this is what actually happened to me earlier this week. Um, you may notice that I've, I sound a bit sick or I, I have been sick. I'm good now. Um, but earlier this week, my two-year-old son started to feel puny and have a runny nose. And so he's crying and he's feeling miserable. And there's that split second you get as a parent, right? That you think, okay, if I draw near and comfort my sick child, I'm going to get sick too. But parents in the room know what I'm talking about. Like I didn't give that a second thought. Like my, my beloved son was sick and miserable and I'm his dad. And so I scoop him up into my arms and comfort him and, and literally can feel the moment where I become, snick, become sick. Uh, and, and you know what? It was, it was worth it. I just couldn't tolerate uh, my son going through that misery alone. And, and that's, that's compassion. So if, if an earthly, sin, selfish, sinful father like me can, can do that, what does that say about our Heavenly Father, who in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is called the Father of Compassion? 
He's the original compassionate heart. He, he saw your brokenness and misery and sent his son into the world, knowing good and well that he would die from the infection of sin that he would take and get and, and the, the judgment he'd receive on the cross. And he did all that to accomplish the fact that you would be redeemed, restored, and brought to a place of flourishing. And so that is what we are to put on in relationships towards one another, compassionate hearts. Second on the list is kindness. Kindness is outward-facing warmth towards others. It's outward-facing goodness towards others. Kindness is always sending the message, you matter to me. That's kindness. Third is humility. Humility is, is freely taking the lowly position of a servant in order to bring about the other person's good. Fourth is meekness or gentleness. And meekness here does not mean weakness or, or being a doormat, but it actually requires great strength to display meekness. Meekness is controlled power. It's controlled power harnessed for good. It's, it's the willingness to bear pain rather than inflict it. So to put this on in relationships actually calls for incredible poise to be able to do this. You're, you're willing to take the hit in order to love somebody else. That's meekness. Fifth is patience. Um, this is the Greek word makrothumia, which means long-suffering, which means suffering for a long time. Um, so that's the heart posture we're to put on towards one another. And that's not what you wanted to hear this morning, right? That's not what you want to put on. You don't want that in your wardrobe. You don't want suffering for a long time. We want magic. We want this supernatural power that can just fix suffering, fix relationships. We, we don't want to do long suffering. So when we're met with relational problems, our gut instinct is to, to bounce, to go to a different group of friends, to go to a different church. But you have to see, like, even the best church— even at the best church, you're going to experience hurt and disappointment and, and need to be ready to put on patience, to bear with others and be ready to forgive each other. Because there's not a, a church or community this side of heaven where you won't have to put those clothes on. So let me stop and ask, how are you doing? How are you living up to all these virtues that Paul is putting before us? Are, are you passing the test and living these out? I hope and pray that you actually are feeling what I felt in my office while writing this sermon. Like, I, I don't live up to this. I don't pass the test. I fail. Who could live up to this? And I want you to see that, that that's actually a good, humble place to be because you're now in a place to receive again the beauty of the gospel. And so it's as Paul is writing about all these virtues that we're to put on, that he drops this little phrase in the forgiveness part. He says, as Christ has. So forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. So he's, he's showing us the secret. All of these virtues are first and foremost virtues that Jesus Christ put on for me. And because he put these virtues on for me, he has secured my status. My status is not dependent on my performance in putting these attributes on. 
But the secret in reproducing these qualities in my life and in relationships is to the degree that I worship Jesus for, these, for putting on these virtues for me, to the degree I delight my heart that he has put these virtues on for me, to that degree I will reproduce those very things in relationships to others. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And so I'll never grow in patience until I stop and worship Jesus who was patient for me with my sin and failure and poured out grace on me. I'll never forgive another person and release them from my anger or bitterness until I experience from Jesus and through Jesus the joy and wonder of what it means to be forgiven. And so as you receive grace from Jesus, it gets reproduced in you. So let me ask you, what virtue, as we look through this list, what virtue do you lack? Which one of these do you struggle to put on in your relationships? So instead of gritting your teeth and trying to, you know, put on patience or put on humility, put on kindness, try this instead. Worship Christ for his kindness towards you. Wonder and delight and rest in that, and that will begin to transform your heart. And in real relationships, though it's hard, you can, from a grounded sense of God's love for you, reenact that same grace you've received. And so Paul keeps going in our passage, verse 14. He, he says, put on love. Verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And he says, and be thankful. And so I don't have time to touch on all of these things, but I do want to point out that Paul hits this note of thankfulness yet again. It's, it's been again and again in Colossians. Thankfulness. It's, it's like the reminder on my phone that goes off about every two hours that says, have you drunk water? Um, that's because I forget to drink water all the time. And I'll, you know, two o'clock rolls around and I have a pounding headache. And I'm like, why, why do I have a headache? I, was, I haven't drunk anything all day. Um, no wonder. So I've, I've got this alarm that goes off on my phone all the time, reminds me to drink water. But Paul is doing the same thing here. He says, thankfulness is like water for the Christian. Paul is constantly reminding us to drink to drink of this thankfulness, to, to put ourselves in this, this posture of grace. Otherwise, we'll get headaches. So do you have reminders in your life, people in your life, to redirect you back to thankfulness? Do you have a way where you stop? Do you have a rhythm where you stop and, and take stock of all the goodness, that, good things that God has done for you? Do you take delight in all the ways God has been gracious to you? And so despite how often... I've been called to preach on thankfulness because I've been preaching through Colossians. There are still days that go by where I'm at home and I'm going around the house in a grumpy, self-entitled mood. And my wife will lovingly ask, what's something you're thankful for? And in that moment, I'm like, I know what you're doing. I know what she's doing. She's trying to get me to drink the water. She's trying to get me back in a state. And so I just, I drink the water. I make myself do it. I don't want to do it in the moment, but I do. But I start to remember God's goodness towards me despite my sin. And my heart comes back to a place of gospel sanity. So do you see, we not only need to see the virtues, these as virtues that Jesus has put on for us, but we also need each other to put them on with us 
and for us in relationships because we're going to drop the ball in putting these on towards one another. But the grace God gives us is each other in community. He gives us Christ and the body of Christ, the church. And what a comfort it is to know that you belong to a community that is committed with you in Christ to put on compassionate hearts, to put on patience towards you, to put on forgiveness towards you. The church isn't going to be perfect in doing this, and neither are you, but we get better and better at giving and receiving grace as we put it on together in community. So Paul is basically saying, you're never going to grow in grace like you should if you're not involved in the life of the local church. And so that's where we, that's the very place where we learn together what it means to give and receive grace. So that leads us to our last point, grace replayed in community. So the question at this point is probably, how can we possibly maintain this high calling to put on love in all of our relationships? Where do we go for the, the energy, the source for, for that power to live that out? So Paul answers in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We'll stop there. So the way to maintain love and peace in the body of Christ is to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, or actually that should say in y'all, that, that the you, the yous in this passage are all plural. So um, another reason I'm advocating for a southern translation of the Bible, you get to see all the y'alls um, in scripture. Um, but Paul wants God's word the message about Christ to dwell richly in the body of Christ so that it, it becomes the normal ministry of each member to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. We're to be a community that knows how to encourage each other, encourage one another. We're a community that, that replays the grace that we've received in Christ to one another. And so when the word of Christ does dwell in us richly, we can't help but to overflow into singing. That's Paul's point there. The church is to be a singing church. And in the early church and also throughout the, the Middle Ages, uh, what was true is that most people in the congregation and in the world were illiterate. And so the way to teach truth, the way to teach doctrine, the, the way to teach often came through song. And so the point of a singing church was, number one, to, to sing praises back to God, to adore Christ. But also, number two, it was to encourage one another through the truth being sung. It was, it was a teaching function as well, that our grip on the truth might be strengthened. So the point of a singing church was never your musical preference. It was never about entertainment. The point is that the church is gathered together in one voice, singing to God and singing to one another. And so you may come to worship after the worst week of your life. After the worst week you can imagine, maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've gotten news of a miscarriage. Maybe you have a, you're coming off a huge moral failure. Whatever it is, you get here and because of your week, you feel like you don't have the strength to lift up your voice and sing with the church. But then you hear the sound of a myriad of voices 
singing things like, it is well with my soul, or great is thy faithfulness, or before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. And it lifts up your heart, and it ministers to your broken spirit. I mean, when, when we close in doxology a lot, um, I often hear little John Chapel Taunton's voice belting out the doxology, and that encourages my heart. That, that strengthens me. That makes me want to love Jesus more to hear that. And the voices of God's people are replaying to you and to one another these, these gracious truths. So that's the point of a singing church. It's, it's singing to God and it's singing to one another, affirming and rejoicing in the gospel. And so let's move on to the last verse. Paul closes with a general principle. He can, he's basically saying he can't spell out every way, you know, what, what gospel living looks like in every type of situation. So he leaves us, he does one better, he just leaves us with a general principle we can apply. So he says, apply this test. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So stop there. That part of the test is asking the question, can I do this thing in his stead? as his representative. Is this something Jesus himself would do? Does he put his name on it? Is it something that honors and glorifies Christ? Is it according to his word, his will? And then the second part, the second step is to ask, is to look at that that next phrase, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So ask yourself, can I do this thing with thankfulness in my heart to God? And so if yes to both of those things, then you can do that thing with all your heart. So Paul, I want you to see, Paul really is pushing you to gospel freedom in your decision-making. You know, you may have 10 options before you that you could do, and you run it through that test, and maybe it's, you know, maybe you get it down to three. Well, if all three of those things honor Christ and can be done with thankfulness, at the end of the day, like, you, you really can just pick one. Whatever you want to do, whatever fills your heart more with thankfulness, go with that. So whichever you pick, you have to realize all the other things are still true that we've already talked about. You are still God's chosen. You're still holy and beloved. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. And in that, you're called to put on love. You're called to be part of a local church that deeply treasures and replays the grace of Christ. So do whatever in his name with thankfulness. Okay, so I'll close with this. Um, There's an excellent fictional book that I love that I don't want to spoil the ending of um, for those of you who haven't read it. So I'll just reference, I'll not reference what it is. Um, But if you've read it, you'll know what I'm talking about. So it's at the end of this book when there's, there's this main character who's in prison and he's awaiting execution the next day, even though he's done nothing wrong. And so all his friends have been working, trying to reverse the situation, but it's all in vain. They realize at the end of the day, there's nothing they can do. But then an unlikely hero steps in, an unlikely friend, uh, and visits the man in prison. And he goes into his prison cell and switches clothes with him. And the man in prison is just stunned by what's transpiring, but he's able to, to put on the clothes and walk out and escape. And the, the unlikely hero takes on the prisoner's clothes. And he took the prisoner's death the next morning. And what I want you to see about that picture is that's the gospel. That's what Jesus has done for us, for you. He has put on our clothes 
our sin, our guilt, and he died our death in our place so that we might put on his clothes of righteousness, his perfection, his resurrection life, his joy, his freedom, his peace. He has secured your status as a beloved child of God for all time. Therefore, put on love in all your relationships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that we get to see flow from you. The grace we see in Jesus Christ. We stand in awe of the of what you've done for us. The substitution you've done for us. You've taken on our sin and you've given us your righteousness. Help us to put on these clothes by faith. Help us to learn more and more what it means to walk um, by faith in you with compassionate hearts towards others, with patience, with forgiveness. Help us to do that in, for your glory and for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.